Hi, everyone. Welcome to Voices on the Side with me, Leah Kim. My guest today is someone I feel like I have known my entire life, although we've actually never met in person. A gem of a friendship by way of none other than social media. Dr. Jasmine is a mother, clinical pharmacist, mental health advocate, and writer. Her essays on postpartum depression and healing have been featured on sites like Motherly and Psyched Mommy. As a Taiwanese-American, she has a particular interest in writing about the AAPI experience of motherhood and mental health. I know I'm biased since this is my podcast, but this conversation is just so good, so rich, so honest and emotional, and also really informative when it comes to postpartum depression and navigating mental health as an Asian American. We talk about our flip-flopped experiences of diversity and representation with our upbringings having both been in Northern California and then our college life being in Los Angeles, and how even though Jasmine didn't grow up feeling oppressed, she knew her life was different as the child of immigrants who didn't say know what a diorama was. With her medical background, Jasmine shares her expertise and personal experience when it comes to medication and how it was an integral part of her recovery despite initially having been resistant. I want to offer the trigger warning that we talk about mental illness and suicidal thoughts and we ourselves get pretty emotional as we speak about this season of motherhood that we both found cripplingly difficult. A key message for anyone suffering is to hang in there because things can and will get better. We touch on how we are approaching parenting differently to how we were parented, and we ultimately bring it all back to hope, courage, strength, and the importance of knowing who we are and taking care of ourselves. Please enjoy this deeply heartwarming conversation with Dr. Jasmine. Jasmine, welcome to Voices on the Side. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me, Leah. This is such an honor. Oh my gosh, it's my honor. I mean, I love, this is like one of the things where social media and the connection through the internet is actually really valuable. Getting to meet people yeah. virtually and just to feel like we have a kindred spirit. I, I feel really lucky to be connected to you. And I'm so glad that you agreed to come and chat with me today. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. And I, I know like it's kind of weird how our paths crossed, but also very grateful that we had a sort of medium to connect through. Right. Yeah. We've really come from a similar place, right? A similar drive to share our stories. And, um, but I want to start with you and your beginning, like where you grew up and if you can tell me a bit about your family of origin. Yeah, sure. My parents came to the U.S. from Taiwan. So I'm like first generation Taiwanese American. And I grew up in the Bay Area in California. So we grew up kind of similar places. <laughs> um, and I've pretty much never left California. Like I went to school here and I did grad school. Um, I did pharmacy school here. I came back and did residency up in the Bay Area. And I've, I'm still here. <laughs> so haven't left. You were born here though? Yes, okay. I was. Yeah. And when your parents came over, did they, why did they pick California? You know, I, I think most of it was because just the MBA program my dad got into. So they came for like, you know, school education, and they were the first of their families to, to leave the country. I think they just thought there was better opportunity for education, for family growth, and just 
like when they when they lived in Taiwan, like they always tell me about like, oh, you know, when we went to high school and stuff, and and then when you go to college, um, you take this test, this this massive like once a year test, and that basically determines your future. So if you screw up that day, you screw up that test or whatever, then then you're screwed for life basically. Um, so like my mom, my mom was always in like you know the top high schools, the top colleges. Um, she went into like accounting, and my dad, um, I think this is like he tells me the story. He says that the day he took his his test, he had like a really bad stomach flu or stomach ache that day. So like he went into this test just like already not feeling good. <laughs> and like I think the test placed him. He became actually like. Uh, a pilot of a ship, like a ship captain. So he sailed like around the world. He did like navigation, um, and it's kind of cool, like the stories he tells me about about that. Um, but then it also meant like you know life at sea. It was hard to start a family. Um, so with my mom and stuff, they did long distance for a little bit while he was like traveling um, or like you know just doing work stuff. And so I think they just decided, you know, we want to settle somewhere where we can raise a family. They can have, you know, our kids can have good opportunities for for learning. And you know, he applied for for business school and then landed in California. So that's kind of where where we've been. Do you have siblings? Yeah, I have a little sister. Uh, we're about almost five years apart. Oh wow, that's a significant. That's a pretty big age gap. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and you know. Part of me thinks my my mom had a pretty rough when I was a kid. I think I think when I was a baby, she had a hard time with me. Just you know, they were first time you know living here. They had no family support, and so it was really rough. And and you know they didn't have a lot of money because they were they were students and they were here on like student visas. Um, I think she actually gave up her schooling so that they could just focus on paying for my dad to finish grad school, and then she focused on me. But I think it was just—it was really hard for just her. So she actually took me back to Taiwan when I was like maybe six months old, and uh, worked like in Taiwan while sending money back to my dad and my grandma. Like helped watch me at that time. Um, so I think like for the longest time they weren't even sure if they wanted another child, uh, just because it was—it was really hard um, and financially, you know, just a lot of different factors. Um, and then I think as I, I got a little bit older, um, I actually remember this. My mom asked me one day, like, "Do you want like a brother or sister?" Mm-hmm. And I was like, "Yeah, yeah, I do." I said, um, "You know, I want to, I want a baby brother, so that you know, there's like two boys and two girls in our family, so we're like equal. You know, we, we like we each have like one one of each." And so she's like, "Well, she's like, I, I don't know if I can control that." Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but I think I think they were kind of on the fence, and because I was very like, um, I'm I'm more of a social person, so I, I think I I wanted uh, that, and so I think because I said I wanted it, she was more inclined to like, okay, let's let's try. Um, so that's I think that's why there's a larger age gap between us. Yeah, that's um, I know when when I now that I'm a mom, I. I'm just amazed that any parent has successfully raised children and, you know, like gotten, yep. gotten through, gotten through life, kept us alive and healthy and um, fed and educated. <laughs> and um, it's just like, I mean, it's, it is really, it's the craziest achievement that when you're a child, you just have no concept, you know, 
And and you shouldn't. You're a child. You should totally. get to live in your childhood innocence. But um, it really is only when we become parents ourselves that we can really look back and appreciate what our parents went through, particularly immigrant parents, which is a big reason why um, I started this podcast was to elevate just how differently we are raised. And I found it really interesting when we had our chat on the phone a couple of weeks ago, and we were just kind of briefly touching upon the different topics. And you said, even though your parents were immigrants, where you grew up, you did not feel like you were really a marginalized person. Like you didn't really feel tokenized. You had a lot of other Asian people around you, was it? Yeah. Yeah. And um, it's so interesting because, I mean, we both kind of had Bay Area upbringings, but depending on where you live and what schools you go to and stuff, it, it can still be different, right? Um, so, yeah, actually, I felt like the community that I grew up in, and, and maybe it was on purpose that my parents picked a community like this, um, it just felt like it was a lot of similar people lived there, where a lot of them, a lot of my friends were also first generation Asian Americans. And I think when I graduated high school, I want to say the statistic for like my high school class was maybe like 70 something percent Asian. <laughs> right. um, for my graduating class. So, you know, a lot of my classmates were Asian American. I felt like the community also like, you know, we had a lot of Asian grocery stores, there were like Asian you know, restaurants. So I guess I had like kind of the best of both worlds, right? We had like some of the, the things that my parents might've exposed us to had we, you know, grew up in Taiwan or something. And, and they, they sent me to like Chinese school. So I also had like Chinese friends and upbringings and, and just kind of really re- immersed in my, my culture growing up. So yeah, I, I didn't really feel like, like I was the only Asian person in my class or anything like that. Like I saw people that looked like me. I was friends with a lot of people that looked like me. And, and actually on the contrary, I felt like I, I didn't actually have as many friends that were Caucasian. So when I went to college, I went to uh, I went to USC. So you know it was like LA, very different, and um, it was totally different, like a big melting pot in LA. So that was when I I suddenly felt like wow, like I'm I'm pretty different. And and I was also only like one of two people from my high school class that went there at that time. So I think also I just I kind of wanted to break away and explore something different um, and not just be stuck in that sort of high school bubble. So I chose to like go somewhere a little bit farther um, as well as, you know, a a career path just sort of kind of landed me there too as well. It's so interesting because we had exactly opposite experiences, (laughs) but geographically the same because I grew up in the Bay Area too, but I went to a Catholic high school, which was like, I think 96% white. Oh my gosh. Yeah. It's either, it was, I just remember the number 4%. So it was either 4% not white or 4% Asian, but whatever it is, it was extremely white. <laughs> okay. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, um, in Mountain View. And then I went to UCLA. Okay. Oh, okay. So we're like rivals. <laughs> we're rivals. I mean, um, it's okay. <laughs> but you know, you've, you've, I'm sure you've heard of UCLA referred to as the University of Caucasians Lost in Asia. I did not you know. know. <laughs> no, I didn't know that was that. So for me, it was but this I like, that. it was this really wild change from like having gone to a primarily white high school and then yeah. moving to LA and being amongst, you know, Caucasians lost in Asia. 
And, um, you know, there were all there. I, I think UCLA probably has more Asians than USC. I don't, I haven't looked at statistics, I, but that's just sort of like, would be my guess. Right. I can, I can sense that only because like, you know, amongst my very Asian high school, a lot of them also went to UCLA, yeah. UC Berkeley. Yeah. Um, and those are all schools I had applied to, but then in the end decided like, no, I'm going to be yeah. Well, uh, yeah. So it's very interesting because geographically we made the same move. We grew up in the same That's area right. and then we moved South and yeah, which just supports this whole concept of Asian people are not a monolith. Our experience is not, you know, no. like it's really varied. Also, I want to ask about being, um, you being Taiwanese, because I had yeah. a couple best friends growing up that were Taiwanese and I give people a hard time for not having known what Korean was growing up. You know, right. people were like, Korea, is that in China? Uh, you know, like they just oh, no. didn't know, but I equally was like, oh, my, this is my Chinese friend. And my Taiwanese friends would be very right. adamant that they are Taiwanese, not Chinese. And I wonder if you have a similar like very strong identification. I mean, obviously they're different, but like, if do you have any, if, if you yeah. can inform and educate our listeners on that, because I didn't <laughs> know at all growing up. Yeah. So I, I think that's kind of a touchy subject for a lot of people in general, because, you know, you don't want to seem like, oh, like I'm not Chinese, I'm Taiwanese. I, I don't think we should really make that distinction because in, in the end, we all speak Chinese. It's it's all like one sort of language. However, there are differences in like, you can tell like uh, Taiwanese Mandarin sounds different than like mainland China Mandarin. It does sound kind of different. So there are slightly different, you know, words and dialects. Um, and I, I want to say maybe the culture is slightly different. So Taiwanese people maybe just have like, I feel like, with my upbringing, with my family and, and community, they just, I think they have a lot of pride in like, you know, what they've sort of achieved as a small, like, you know, country on, on the side and, and, but China feels very like, okay, you know, we're, they're still kind of part of us. <laughs> like we still sort of own them. So there's a little bit of a, a, a I feel like tension on that part. Um, but there, I do think that there is slightly like different roots and different cultural like things also. But I, I think I wouldn't be offended if you said like I was Chinese to somebody like, yes, I am. Like, you know, in the end, like we all come from the same sort of culture and history at the very root of everything. But but I can I can sort of understand like you know I felt like there weren't as many Korean Americans in the Bay Area growing up, mm -hmm. and I met a lot more when I moved to oh, LA. Oh yeah, so that um, was yeah. There's definitely I mean there's K Town in LA, right? 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 So exactly, which I think is I'm not sure anymore, but definitely when I was in college, it was like known as the largest population of Koreans outside of Korea, um, oh, and yeah, I mean I have I've. I have relatives that have been in LA, but we in the Bay Area, there weren't as many Koreans. Um, I, I agree with that experience, but you got to college and you're like, oh, actually now you had more diversity for you, which was fewer Asians, but more diverse across multiple races was right. your experience when you got there. But it sounds right. like it was something that you really welcomed, right? Like a different kind of day-to-day -day life was there ever a time where you felt like I don't know like what did it feel oppressive at all or did did it just feel like a really equitable and kind of environment where everyone including yourself was it really respected yeah I, I I do think that you know I've never really felt like marginalized or anything and and it did feel pretty easy to fit in and strangely enough though I 
I feel like I still gravitated towards Asian friends, even though, you know, my whole point was just to, you know, broaden my horizons, right? Just sort of branch out more. But I don't know why it just sort of happens that way that that you tend to sort of gravitate towards that you know and it depends on like what situations you're in sometimes you're sort of forced or um, given the opportunities to work with other people and and then and then you develop those friendships right Um, my roommate was actually half Japanese half white and um, she she was in like a, a business fraternity so I I met like a lot of her friends and stuff but actually even her fraternity was a lot of it was Asian as well like kind of half half mix um so it's strange that like you know I don't think we try to necessarily like box ourselves in but it sort of just happens like you sort of yeah it kind of flows that way sometimes I was very um anti-Korean for so much of my childhood. And that was informed by feeling Mm -hmm. so different, right? And as a kid, you just don't want to be different. You want to fit in, you want to be like everyone else. I just, I always remember the class photo in like (laughs) elementary school where all 30 kids are there. And I'm like, it was like me. And I was, I was always very tan. So like we looked very brown in the pictures, like me. And then like one other, maybe there was like, an Indian boy, or, you know, it was just like amongst a sea of white faces. And so I, as a kid, you know, not understanding or not really knowing that like every kid should be proud of who they are. And, you know, like it was much more like, I just wanted to fit in. So I went through phases of like really rejecting my Korean heritage. Like I was like, I wasn't going to eat the food anymore. I wasn't going to use chopsticks. Like, don't you dare call me by my Korean name. Like I stopped speaking Korean um, at home. And it was this like real rebellion that I had. And, and it was really only getting to college and seeing other Koreans, seeing like the Korean associations and not just Korean, but other Asian and other ethnic groups being celebrated yeah. and people my age being really proud that I was like, I started like stepping into that. But like through it all, even despite my efforts to rebel against my Asianness, my best friends, the friends that I like, even like you, right. our connection, you know, you're in my connection the things that came easiest were with fellow Asian people. (laughs) You know, there's just this like feeling of, um, I don't know me. It's like, you, you know, that there's going to be a baseline shared understanding of having been raised by immigrant parents who had the same struggles of arriving to a foreign country, not knowing the language fully, not having much money, you know, like all this stuff. I think there's like so much unspoken, understanding. And one of my best friends from college, who's still my best friend to this day, and we were roommates for ages is Korean. And neither of us felt very (laughs) Korean. You know, we were like good friends that we kind of like ignored the fact that we were Korean. And it's only in more recent years that I've really been critically thinking about my racial identity, um, especially in light of the last few years of the rise in anti-Asian hate crimes and that I've really thought like, wait a minute, I've, I've been, I, you know, like I, I pretend right. like I'm not Korean, but like, let's be honest, like all my closest friends are Asian, you know, for the most part, not all of them, yeah. majority of them. Um, and yeah. there's something there there's like, and I think, um, the positive thing that's come out of the last few years 
of that's been very scary with the hate crimes against Asians has been that we are all talking about all this more, right? Because I think, I mean, would you agree that, so for me, because I had this feeling marginalized, blah, 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 you know, relationship with my race, I was very afraid to speak up even to my own self. Like I like, you know, when I felt like things happened that were race motivated, I would just be like, no, that's not it. You know, I would, I would just, even though I knew deep down that that was a factor. Um, so I could barely admit it to myself and trying to talk about it with other people was like hit or miss, you know, like a lot of Asians were of the opinion that racism didn't exist against Asian people. It wasn't like an Asian problem. And I, I would love to know your thoughts on this because I know that you write about, you know, you are, I mean, you are a writer of the Asian Pacific Islander experience. So, I mean, I just put through so many <laughs> things at you, but I, I would love your thoughts on, on any of those things. You know, I feel like racism and like the topic, just like growing up, it kind of just got swept under the rug. Like, just try to stay small, just try to stay quiet, just try to keep out of trouble. You know, don't stir the pot because then you'll find yourself, you know, dealing with more more problems than you really have to just sort of fly under the radar. And I feel like that's sort of been my whole life. You know, even though like, you know, my community was pretty Asian and stuff, I definitely did feel like there were some things that if you understand white culture or, or certain things that it was a little bit harder to get by. So like, you know, if your parents are helping you with a science fair project, I remember like one time coming home, like, um, can you help me make like a, a diorama? And my parents are like, what the heck is that? You know? And then, so I just felt like I struggled <laughs> with some of these things and being like the first child too, you're just like, okay, like sink or swim. And then like, you know, in, in light of just, I guess, recent things, it's, it, it's been kind of hard to swallow that there were like, you know, a lot of targeted things. And, and I think it's hard to ignore that this isn't a, a race issue. You're never going to be able to erase like what you look like, right? And and that's why representation, I think, is so important to, to speak up about things and have a, have a, a voice to certain things. And I mean, you know, we you and I connected on kind of mental health fronts, right? Talking about our, our experiences with postpartum depression. And I think what really drew me towards your story was as I'm looking, you know, I, I think I found you on the motherhood understood page. So as I'm looking through all these stories of women who've submitted their stories about postpartum depression or anxiety, or, you know, just their postpartum, like story in general, I'm like, there are no pictures of any Asians here. Does that mean we don't have problems? Does that mean we don't have mental health issues? Does that mean for some reason we're just better at doing this and we don't struggle? And, and I think that's when like your story popped out. I was like, she looks Asian. I'm going to read this story. Like, I want to see what this is about. Mm -hmm. And just reading it through was like, wow, like that, like, I need to talk to this girl. <laughs> like, you know, a lot of this like resonates so deeply. I think that um, we're finding more of our voices in talking about it um, as, as hard as it has been like our whole lives in being silenced and feeling like we shouldn't because then we just, you know, we don't want to rock the boat. Um, but I think we're getting to the point that we're seeing that, you know, we need to sort of talk about race in, in relation to, to like mental health even, right? A very sobering statistic I learned during my 
journey through postpartum depression and, and healing was that Asian women are nine times more likely to have suicidal thoughts during the postpartum period. In comparison to like black Hispanic women, maybe two times more than Caucasian women, but nine times. And then you don't hear about it. You, you don't hear them talking about it. You don't, you don't see the stories. So I just feel like a lot of it's hidden and people, I don't know if they're searching for these voices or they're looking uh, for these stories, but I, I think they kind of need to be told. Um, I, I think we just don't talk about it. I'm enough. so emotional just listening to you. And um, it it's so clear that the Asian, especially Asian American expectation of brushing things under the rug, right? You don't like mm-hmm. safe face. Um, you don't cause trouble. You don't make noise. All that stuff is tied to mm-hmm. that statistic, because a huge factor of feeling hopeless when you're going through mental health struggles is feeling like you're alone, you know, yep. feeling like it's only you. And that's why when you came across mm-hmm. my piece, you're like, oh my God, finally, somebody that looks like me, <laughs> right? Just like when you, what we're talking about a few minutes ago with like natural friendships happening with fellow Asian people. So it's a version of that but with the specific context of a fellow mother going through postpartum depression and just not having access to those stories. And so if you're one of those mothers that are nine times more likely to have suicidal thoughts, it has to be connected to the fact that they feel like they nobody else like them that looks like them or even that they know, you know, like literally their own loved ones because we've all been sort of like, told or maybe not maybe not even explicitly told but just by how we are raised and how we see our parents live no. you don't talk about that stuff therapy is not talked about like mental illness is not it's the, i don't even know if it's believed right. you know like us like the children of this generation um that we're sort of like straddling these two realities right because you're like oh there's all these americans or white families or white people that are on motherhood yeah. understood, let's say, that are out there sharing their stories. And um, okay, I'm a mom. I theoretically should be able to be part of that conversation, except there's this whole mm-hmm. other side of my life, you know, within my own home and my own, you know, like actual people that I know. And it's not really talked about. Like I can't imagine ever going to my parents or, you know, whoever about this. So you're sort of like, Something must be yes. wrong with me because I don't fit into either yes. of these categories, you know, and, but it's not, it's not just me. It was not just you. And it's not just those. I'm like, that's it. I have actually have not heard that statistic before. And it's absolutely heartbreaking because I know yeah. that it's true. You know, I know that yeah. that is so true. And um, I mean, I guess this is why you and I both have felt this like need to be, be a voice within this space. Right. Yeah. And when I first publicly shared what I was going through, it was so, so scary to do it. And also I felt like I couldn't not do it. Like I just, I had to. Do you remember the first thing you put out there where you shared? Yeah, so I um, started a travel blog back in like, I think 2017 or something. So I had like a, a sort of forum to to write, you know. It was travel content, but 
you know, as, as I became a mom, um, I, I struggled first with like even conceiving. So the first thing I wrote actually was, um, even before I went through postpartum depression, I wrote about the whole journey of conceiving and how hard it was to get to that point where, you know, now I'm finally going to have a baby because, you know, even though my story is not like anything big or I didn't have to go through like, you know, medications or IVF or anything like that, I still felt like it was a voice that like people didn't hear about because it's like, oh, you didn't suffer that hard. So you shouldn't have to talk. You you know, it doesn't, it's not as valid, you know, but I, I just felt like, no, I think somebody out there probably is also struggling and feels kind of the same way. And even though they're, they're not suffering the hardest, doesn't mean that their feelings aren't valid, right? That it's not hard, you know, yearning for something that you you don't have that you you feel like you should. So that was kind of the first thing I wrote on my blog that was very like, you know, didn't didn't stick with any of my travel content, obviously. But um, it, it really sort of like, I had a lot of feedback from friends that were like, oh my gosh, like, I didn't know you were going through this. And, you know, I went through this too. And um, so I think that sort of opened the door for me uh, afterwards feeling like maybe I could also share my postpartum depression story because on the other side of after I, you know, after I gave birth, there was this whole other monster that I was like, oh my gosh, like that blindsided me too. Um, you know, I should have been so happy. I went, I got over this sort of infertility hump. Now, uh, you know, I should be like, you know, the most blissful, you know, this, that was the hardest part. You know, the hard part is probably like, you know, delivery. Cause you know, in your head, I mean, the movies, like, that's the hardest part, right? Like, getting that baby out, that's, like, the most painful part, right? So I I had done all this preparation, like, you know, for the childbirth part and completely just sort of dropped the ball on postpartum care and and didn't realize what was on the other side that could happen. Um, so when I shared, uh, I, I think I wrote about my postpartum depression story, maybe, I want to say, like, eight or nine months postpartum, my depression hit pretty pretty soon, like almost right off the bat um, after I delivered and uh, took a while for the recovery. And I have to say like the recovery probably happened a lot faster than I, than I thought it might have. And so writing was almost a way for me to heal in a way too, to like get it out there, the feelings and um, sort of write down that, that story and, and timeline while it was sort of fresh. And, uh, and I wrote it, I had so much to write that I had to split it up into like, you know, three or four parts. But, you know, as I was writing it, like people were like giving me really positive feedback as in like, wow, like I, I didn't know. Cause you know, you really just can't tell by looking at someone how they're doing. And also I had really bad experiences too. And, and as I wrote, you know, the first part, I was like, wow, I think I have to keep sharing because people are coming to me telling me like, wow, you know, this isn't talked about, and I'm so glad you're talking about it. So I think it was scary sort of putting, you know, like you said, putting yourself out there. And again, also like, like there's a need for it. You, you couldn't not, right? Uh, especially I think like, you know, you and I also enjoy writing. So it's not like it was like a big task for us. I felt like it was therapeutic in a way and, um, you know, helpful for yourself and other people. What do you credit your, you said that you healed or started healing quicker than you thought you might. What do you credit that to? Um, several things. I mean, one, one big part was, was obviously my husband, my, my, my partner was very supportive. Um, 
he ended up taking like uh, a year off on leave, uh, unpaid leave to sort of help me recover, make sure that we had support, um, you know, taking care of the baby so I wouldn't have to worry about her. And um, on and then making sure I went to my appointments. We haven't talked about this exactly yet, but I'm a pharmacist. So I, I work in the medical field. I know a lot about, you know, depression itself, about medications itself. And you know, starting seeing my doctor, like my OB at my six week visit, she's like, you need to be on an antidepressant. Like she, she could tell it was really bad. And I just resisted. Like, I, I think I had sort of this, I don't know, just complex, maybe just hubris, like, oh no, like, you know, I know what I'm going, I know what I'm doing. I understand the symptoms. I know it's going to go away, you know, because I, I'm going to, I'm going to tackle the source of the problem, which I thought was breastfeeding. So I was like, you know, if I just stop breastfeeding, it will make everything better. And, you know, and, and then I'll be fine. I don't need medications. And then I was like, I don't need therapy. <laughs> you know, like, she's like, you need to go see someone. You need to go talk to someone. I was like, this is baloney. And, and she's like, just call them. Just please just call them and see. And then when I called, they were like, okay, your first appointment available is six weeks out. And I was like, I'm in like, I, I was like six weeks out. How are you going to help me? Like, I already feel like I'm in like this, like dark, dark hole. And you want me to wait six weeks to get help? Like going through one day felt so painful that I'm like, just forget it. I'm like, this is the system is like broken. No one's going to be able to help me. Medications take like four to six weeks to kick in. I was like, I needed to be better like yesterday. And, um, and so I think my husband was really like a, a force saying like, you need to take the medicine. Like, I think you need to start the medicine. I think, and he's also one not to like push medications and, and doctors because he hates those things too. And, and he was like, no, you need, you, I think you need to, can you please try? Um, so, and then the therapy too, he's like, maybe you should, maybe you should talk to someone. And I'm like, coming from someone who's also very like anti all this, it was just like kind of a, a red flag to me, like how bad it had gotten. Um, and so I think he was a, a critical thing to help me recover, but then also the therapy and the medications were really important. So I think if I, you know, I, I, I really do feel like the medications were what helped me stabilize better and sort of to be able to see better, like where I needed to go, because I think I was so like lost in my own thoughts of like, anxiety and sort of this worthlessness like I, I'm I'm failing as a mother you know and why did I why did I think that you know I could do this why did I you know wish so hard for a baby and that this was the outcome you know um so so I really do think that you know that the medications um helped me get to a point that I could um see where I needed to go you know, it, it, it wasn't something I could think my way out of where I think like, you know, the Asian mindset is just like, oh, you know, just don't think those things. Right. Like, you know, it, why would you pay to talk to someone about your feelings? Just talk to a family member. I'm like, OK, that's that's not the same thing. And, <laughs> um, and you know, as a pharmacist, I wouldn't think twice about telling a patient you need to take your medicine if your doctor tells you to. But but now being you know, I understand the hesitation now being on the page patient side myself. Um, and, and, and I also can see now like how it can help, you know, it's kind of like, 
like it helped me find my glasses in the dark, right? Like, you know, you still can't see very well with your glasses in the dark, but at least it helps. It helps you focus a little bit, right? So I, I felt like that that way I could start seeing better and, and, and more finding my way out. But it doesn't work on its own. You have to put in the work and that's where the therapy comes in, right? You know, to, to work on those sort of curbing your thoughts. And um, so I think they really do work hand in hand. And for me, those were, those were my saving graces. Did you eventually wean off the medication and how long, if you don't mind sharing, like how long was that yeah. process being on them? Um, yes. So, um, and this is like all stuff I actually ended up writing about in my blog too. It's that's why it ended up being so many parts. Um, I had a part four that talked about weaning off the medicine, um, which I wasn't like anticipating writing, but because of the whole journey, I was like, you know, I think I need to wrap it up. Um, so weaning takes a while. I probably cut the dose down by like 25% and would stay on it for like a month before the next cut down. So all in all together, I, I want to say I was on medication maybe 17 or 18 months, like a year and a half. Uh, and um, reason like the, the doctor really said, um, you know, most of the time we want patients to be stable for like six months to a year before we even consider sort of stepping down. And I think because my doctor knew how severe I had been, she's like, I really would like you. This was my psychiatrist who's who's a doctor specialized in, in psych medicine. And she's like, I really like you to stay on it for at least a year. So I think that's why I had to be on it for a year. And honestly, after a certain point, it was just kind of like taking a pill, like a water pill. To me, it didn't really feel like it was that much difference. And weaning off of it, I didn't really feel much difference when we cut the doses down. Uh, but when I finally stopped it, and we had been cutting down over like, you know, three, four months. And then when I finally stopped it, there was still like a little bit of withdrawal. So that part, I think, kind of caught me off guard, which is why I ended up writing about it. So people would kind of understand what to expect. But, you know, all in all, like, I haven't felt the urge to think about going back on anything. And I always told myself, you know, if I did, though, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't hesitate, because getting that mental health back and space really, I think, was important for me in being a good mom to to my kid. You know, if I'm if I'm not well, how is my kid going to be well? You know? Yeah, totally. And and you had not had any experiences with depression prior to like giving birth. No, not at all. Um, I and but you know, I I do feel like maybe there was undiagnosed anxiety. You know, but but you know, a lot of people are sort of high performing anxiety people. Um, they just sort of like keep it all in, and and at some point, um, it might crack. And and I think motherhood being thrown into it was sort of the catalyst to sort of unraveling for me, where like I just became so overwhelmed with everything that was happening, and and I wasn't prepared for how much I had to sort of let go of control, uh, because a lot of it is out of your control. You can't control when your baby's going to sleep or wake up. You can't control how much your baby's going to eat or not, right? And you you sometimes you can't control if you can breastfeed or not. And I think a lot of that pressure was really what did me in. Well, I think you said something earlier where you were like, "Oh, the hard part is going to be the delivery." You know, like yeah. and yeah. <laughs> society does make you think it's like that. You know, when you're pregnant, it's just mm -hmm. all about maternity clothes and cravings and what's your birth plan, you know, like, mm -hmm. and then the baby hopefully, uh, arrives healthy and then everything shifts to the baby. 
you know, yep. like what's the baby's feeding schedule? What's the baby's gonna wear? What's, you know, how's the baby doing? And right. um, mom gets forgotten in that process when mom is probably the most vulnerable she will ever be in her entire life, that postpartum period. And so true. we've both been emotional in this conversation, despite being removed, you know, we are not postpartum. Um, we are not experiencing the symptoms that we're talking about, but the residue of the, the pain of it is like right here. Right. It's like, it's like grief. I think, you know, like people talk about even after having lost a loved one, like decades later, a memory will come flooding back and it's just like right on the surface. And I think that it is really I don't, the word courageous sounds condescending, but like, it is so important that despite no longer being postpartum, you still feel so strongly to be a part of this conversation, right? Like particularly representing Asian mothers. Do you ever feel though that I've, I've had thoughts before, because I have friends that also went through postpartum that once they get through it, they never look back. You know, it's just like experience they had way back when, and like, they don't talk, they're not going to go deep into it. And I've been like, wait, maybe that's what I need to be doing. You know, like, especially, Mm -hmm. so I've had a second child, um, Mm -hmm. even bigger age gap than you and your sister, uh, six and a half Mm -hmm. years between my two, actually it's my son's birthday today. It's, he's nine nine today. So yeah, it's very, I feel like it's, it's just like very kismet that we are having this conversation today. Cause I can't like last night when it struck midnight, I was like nine years ago today, my life, everything changed, you know, and and for for better and for worse, like all the good and the bad, but not for worse, but you know, having gone through the postpartum challenges. Um, and then I had my second and I was so terrified, terrified to get pregnant again in the first place, which is why they have such a right. big age gap. Because you just don't know what's going to happen with your mental health, right? You don't know. Yeah. They, there's no, st- I think I've heard different things, but my OB was like, you are more likely to go through postpartum depression again if you've gone through the first time. But like, I think statistically, it's not like. No, I think it's like 50%. Right. It's like half, half. Exactly. It's not yeah. like a. It's still a gamble. It's, still, like, it's, it's a gamble. Still, it's a gamble, yeah. but it's not like you'll definitely get it again, you know? And so I was terrified right. the whole time, but I, you know, just like told myself, well, I've got support systems now. I got through it before. I can get through it again. I know how to recognize symptoms. I know how to ask for help, all those things. And like, it didn't happen. And like, I kept, I kept like waiting for it. You know, I was like, as if it was like a monster about to like jump out from the corner and scare me. I was just like, (laughs) I felt so at ease with my daughter. And I was like, okay, is the, when's it going to happen? And a friend of mine called and everyone was calling to check in on me. Like everybody was like, cause I, I had been so public with it. And obviously my friends knew and people were like wanting to make sure I was okay. And I remember this one phone call with a friend She's like, how are you doing? You know, like in this like very loaded way. And I was like, I'm good. I'm like, I keep waiting to feel bad, but I don't feel bad. So I think I'm just going to keep feeling good, you know? And it was this like (laughs) really confusing state of mind to be, have a newborn 
to have an infant and to not feel bad because I never had had that with my first. And so, yeah, and yet, and yet I still am so compelled to have this conversation. You know, I just can't, I, I don't know. I just can't just discard what I went through and also right. knowing all the other mothers that are going through it in this moment. Like, I just am not one of those people that is, can just be like, oh, that was something in the past for me. Bye. Yeah. Some people might consider that a strength that like they can just forget and move on. Um, and I used to think, I think I used to think that was a strength uh, because I, I had lost a, a friend that said, you know, I think you talk too much about mental health. You must not be okay. And I was like, okay, well, I was like, I'm not talking about it from the point that like, I'm not okay, but I think people need to need to have somewhere to connect and understand that they're not alone. And I, I do think that as we get further from our postpartum period, we actually have more distance that we can talk about it in kind of an experience voice and, and, and looking back retrospect. Um, and that I think it helps offer a light to people who can say, wow, like I can get to that point like, you know, you went through it so badly, but like you still made it through, like there's hope. Because I think when you're in the deepest parts of depression, a lot of it is feeling very hopeless. Like this is my life. You catastrophize, right? You think I'm never going to, never going to be able to sleep again. I'm never going to be able to do this again. I'm never going to feel like myself again. A big part of my uh, depression also revolved around insomnia. So I still to this day sort of get like anxiety around sleeping. If I don't get good sleep, um, if I can't, make sure I'm going to be getting good sleep, then I start feeling anxious, like, okay, something bad is going to happen, because a lot of it revolved around me not getting sleep. Um, so I, and I think a lot of a, le a huge lesson really is that sleep is very important. It's, it's not just like, it's why you have to eat, you have to drink, you have to sleep, like, it's a very basic fundamental necessity. And, and it's hard, because as a new mom, like you're trying to do it all. And you're, you're doing it at the expense of your sleep. You sacrifice that. But you you can't. Like, I, honestly, like, looking back, um, I think that's that's a huge part of why, you know, things spiraled for me. So I think, you know, we can't give up talking about this even if we're removed because there's still, it's still happening. People are still, you know, going through it and, and they still want to look for that anchor or, or light. So... I'm glad you're still talking about it, Leah. Like, I think this is a strength to be able to still reach into like the depths of that pain and make it better for somebody else. I, I think that is actually a true strength that you don't just shove it aside. You know, you can still feel it and you can still live through it and, and you're still okay, right? Yeah, I mean, and I think you to have the support of fellow mothers but also it sounds like with you, you had really good doctors. Like you're, you had, I mean, you had your, at your six week checkup, your OB that was like, Hey, I mean, you, you said the system is broken, which yes, certainly, but it sounds like you had good doctors that helped guide you. I mean, do you feel that? Did you feel, did you feel like you were taken care of? And I actually would be curious about this from when you were pregnant as well. And if I think I read something recently that there are more initiatives that are trying to get mental health care as part of pregnancy care, being part of the conversation. And I wonder if that was in your care when you were pregnant. 
And I don't know, what do you feel about the doctors that you had? I I think that that's a great piece that needs to be included in pregnancy care is like introducing mom to, to maybe just get connected with a therapist at that point. You know, even if you're not having problems or you're not struggling, because once you're in postpartum, like the struggle to find somebody and connect with somebody and feel like, you know, they actually get you can be so rough and you don't have the time for that. You have a newborn to take care of. Like, how do you have time to like figure out who you vibe with as a therapist or something? Right. So I do agree that we we do need to sort of do better in, in during like kind of that pregnancy period. But, uh, you know, I work in healthcare, right? And and the doctor I had, my OB doctor, I've had a long relationship with her. So I think she could be very blunt and sort of like to the point, like, you know, this is not right. I know you and I know this isn't right. So I'm lucky that I had that relationship with her in terms of like finding a therapist and a good, you know, psych doctor and everything. I don't think that I got necessarily the best coming out. I I really had to sort of like figure my way out through that. I was assigned like a a psychiatrist that I think I just got kind of lucky that I had a a good one who sort of like convinced me that she was going to help me get sleep. Because at first when I was fumbling around and I couldn't sleep, I was messaging like my primary care doctor and I would say like, hey, like, you know, can I try this med? Can I try this med? And you know, because she knows I'm a pharmacist and and that I work with her, she's like, oh yeah, sure. You could try this or whatever. I I felt like they weren't very like, they didn't really give their input. It was more like, oh, okay, if you want that, all right, just, just try it or whatever. And and in a way I kind of felt like I needed a little bit of handholding. Maybe I needed a little bit of like better, like, you know, supervision or like look at what would work better for you at this stage right now. Um, I tried a lot of things that just didn't feel like it worked, or maybe I was just so anxious. I just totally discarded you know, nope, this just doesn't work. Nope, this feels funny. Nope, you know, and, um, and when I finally got connected with the psychiatrist, I was like, desperate, like, I need something to help me sleep. And she was like, Okay, we're gonna get to the bottom of this, you know, and I and I really at that point felt like someone was holding my hand. But it took a while to get there, like took maybe like two months before I found somebody like that. Um, And even like the first therapist, they had sort of like, assigned me to she was like some young and not to like you know bag on like young therapists or whatever they're you know I get it you're working you know she's maybe like in her early mid-20s about to get married was like oh I've I've struggled with anxiety my whole life I get it I'm like no you don't (laughs) like and then like she came across very like wow, I don't think I ever want kids. Like, you know, like, I'm like, oh my God, like, then why are you my therapist? Right. And uh, so anyways, like that didn't work out. You know, I did fumble my way through until I could really advocate and find myself a good therapist. And in the beginning, I think I didn't try very hard either because I just didn't see the value in the therapy. I'm like, what's the point of this? Right. Um, When I had my daughter, it was the year before COVID. So we were still doing like, they were like, come in, come in person. And I'm like, no, like, like, you know, I'm a new mom. I know the schedule. I don't know when she's going to be sleeping. Like, you know, so I think like, despite like COVID not being a good thing either, I think one good thing coming out of it was a lot of those video visits and being able to talk to a therapist, you know, via video or something. So yeah, uh, it, it may sound like I have it all together and I have the right team, but I I do think I had to sort of struggle to piece that team together as well. So it requires that patience, which is very not what our culture teaches us with instant gratification, right? Like we want the quick right. fix. 
we want the magic pill just to fix it overnight, to make it all go away. And I think this is also partly why people hit that point of desperation because they're like, well, if I'm not fixed in like a week or a month, then I might as well give up or, you know, like it just gets really terrible, but it's true when it comes to mental health, there is no easy answer. And it is why doctors also are like, you have to try multiple things. Like you said, it takes four to six weeks to even know whether the right medication and the right dosage that is working for you. You have to figure it out. So I think a big message is to hang in there. You have to hang in there. Right. And, and hopefully you have some life raft, whether it's like your partner or a friend or a blog, you know, like somebody, something where like, if you can just hold on, you know, you could just hang on, hang in there. And it does, you're right. It does take piecing together. It is, it is, takes so much trial and error and, there's so much you're overcoming. It's not just like, oh, I've had a baby and I'm struggling. It's like digging into your belief system. Like I'm a pharmacist, but I don't even want to take medication. Like there's so much being challenged. Like for me, the big thing was because I was a yoga teacher. uh, I was like, I should be able to meditate and breathe (laughs) my way to gratitude. Like why, why are my affirmations working? That was my thing. And it was like, wait, something must be really wrong because I'm on my yoga mat, but I'm not feeling better. You know, it was like all these, like your core ideas get really challenged going through. Not, I I would imagine any, any time depression hits, whether it's postpartum or not, right. It's um, like the ground beneath you has just been, (laughs) we're taken, taken away, like shattered to pieces. And, um, but I think, as much as becoming a mom takes away your ability to have held stuff together that maybe shouldn't have been held together, right? Like you said, you had undiagnosed anxiety potentially, but that you were able to control, you were able to control factors Mm -hmm. in your life so that you didn't have to succumb to the anxiety. And then you have a child and it's like, oh my God, I can't keep it together anymore because now you're responsible to keep this human alive. So in that way, I used to be so resentful that that had happened to me. You know, I was like, wait, I had everything under control. I had this great life and this great career and this great body and this great whatever. And now it's all gone. But in hindsight, I'm now like, oh my God, having my son on this day, nine years ago is what freed me from any false idea, any forced sort of like way of being that was actually not authentic that I, you know, and I didn't know myself. And it was like, it was like both things, like this little being made things so hard for me, but this little being also freed me. Right. And and like, so I see a lot of your posts where I think you reflect in similar ways. You know, you have these beautiful moments with your beautiful daughter and she, I mean, like, (laughs) right? It's this dichotomy of motherhood brought you to your lowest and also motherhood is what like brought the best in you. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So would you say it's your daughter that is the inspiration and motivation for you to be well and to take care of yourself? Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, first of all though, like I think 
going through that depression and kind of entering motherhood, I think we learn that it's okay to take care of yourself and how important that is, right? Like it's okay to be a little bit selfish and maybe like growing up the way we did, a lot of it is we think of other people first. You have to be considerate of your elders, of, of you know, your parents, your, your sisters, your brothers, your cousins, your aunties, your uncles, like, like you, you put everybody else sort of before you. And it's, it's okay to be a little bit more selfish, a little bit less martyr, you know, in a way, because like surviving that depression really meant having to like take care of myself. Um, so first of all, learning like self-love was a big part of it. And then once I got there, I felt like, you know, yes. And, and, and now that I'm okay, I have this, I have this child to take care of. I have this child to raise. I have her depending on me and I need to be at my best so that she can be at her best. Right. Cause she's not going to get there if I'm, you know, not present for her. So really just like maintaining yourself and, and, you know, self-care is this big buzzword now. Right. But like, the self-maintenance that you do before the car starts smoking and, and, and don't do that when your engine light's actually <laughs> on. Right. So, um, yeah, she's, she's definitely my inspiration for sharing, for going, for being a better person. I think just, you know, it's so interesting as they age, like you get challenged in different ways. You think about the way you're, you were raised and, and how you were brought up and how you want to do things differently. So I definitely think that like, you know, my growth process is just, just begun, right? Like maybe, you know, the depression helped me like find where my ground needed to be and, and where, where my baseline needed to be, but I'm still, I'm still consistently like being challenged by her and figuring out like what it really means to be a good mom, to be a good person, to, to raise a good person. So um, it's been a cool, I think, learning process really like discovering myself, discovering her and making all these like bridges on like, wow, like that's, that's how I learned it. But maybe we don't have to keep doing it that way. Right. Well, a huge thing is we both know that our children will not grow up being told to brush things under the rug. Right. <laughs> My son is nine going on 50. <laughs> He like, he, he has this like air about him where he thinks he's like older than me. And it's because he is repeating the stuff that I, I am actively teaching him and I have his whole life that his opinion, his thoughts are important, but it's tricky because like, sometimes he's sharing his opinion in a very rude way. And, and it's like, oh, I know I've taught him that anything he thinks is valid, but then I need to bring a little bit more of like the, like the Asian kind of upbringing that I had, which is like, you don't talk back to your parents, you know, <laughs> it's like, <laughs> um, so I'm a bit like, oh, and you know, my husband is British and there's actually a lot of similarities culturally with British oh. are not, they're more formal than Americans, right? You can imagine, like, mm, I right. think they even with me, even though I'm I'm Asian, I'm Asian American. So I have this like casual manner when I'm with my British relatives and I'm very aware that I'm like very American in that way. And they have more of like this built, <laughs> if only because their accent is so wonderfully proper and just the way, you know, like we're so, we're, I don't know. There's just like, it's just like kind of no big deal things. But um, so both my husband and I, when we're faced with this 
our child who is very outspoken is very, you know, emotionally aware and like, but he's coming at us with this like <laughs> disrespectful attitude where when we sometimes we like resort, we fall back on like, because I said so, or don't you dare use that tone with us. You know, it's like really tricky because we don't have the model of like how we want to parent, you know, like I do want right. to infuse. It is important to teach my son that like, he has to be respectful, not just to parents or people that are older, but to his peers, it's important. Um, but I really focus so much on encouraging him to know himself and to share his voice and all these things that I wasn't that I'm like, okay, how do I like find that like sweet spot? But I, I, it's better this way than the opposite where they, like a child would feel like his feelings are not valid and not feel like they can talk to us, you know? So um, I feel really proud of, you know, of you, you and myself in having this perspective as mothers. And it gives me so much hope uh, as I look to the younger generation on many levels, not just their own emotional and mental health, but like just bringing it back to the question of race and equality and, you know, just like talking about all things openly and explaining to him as best as I can, you know, and I have so much education to do myself, but no longer buying into any of the like lies around there's no racism against Asian people or racism doesn't exist. Like that ended 400 years ago or whatever, you know, how is your daughter almost just turned four? She just turned okay. Four, not too long ago. Um, yeah. So I wonder like, she might be a little too young to dive into such like kind of real, <laughs> like the realness around this mm -hmm. conversation. And I'm curious, like what does her school life and social life look like? Is it really similar to how you grew up? You know, like, is it very diverse? Like, what does her world look like? Yeah, you know, I think my husband and I were pretty purposeful in thinking about that, um, like where we wanted to settle down and, and sort of have her grow up in the community. Um, he went to the same high school I did. So we're very like, aware of that sort of um, environment and also how it becomes very high pressure. I think if we look now, like today, the same high school, probably like over 90% Asian now. So it's it's just only gotten more, kind of like your high school, but the complete flip opposite. Um, so we, you know, we were really like, we don't want her going somewhere like that. And we want her to have a more balance. So when we were looking at like school districts, we really took a look at like, you know, what's the range of diversity? Like we also didn't want her to go to a completely white high school. Um, so the place that we ended up settling on, I think it's a good mix. Like I think maybe like, you know, 30% Asian, like, you know, 30% white, and then like all the other mix of things. So um, I want her to sort of grow up in a, in a more diverse environment, but also like still kind of honoring our culture and, and identity too, so that she doesn't lose that because I, I think it is important to, um, to hold on to some of that too, because you're never going to, erase what it looks like right it's there and kind of like you and i say like you know we just kind of naturally sort of gravitate even to to people who look like you um so you know i'm i'm hopeful that like maybe being in a sort of more diverse population will have better conversations about this and that she can grow up sort of um you know taking in more and, and understanding more that like everyone's different and and that's okay and that we can grow up and you know 
live in sort of harmony. And obviously, like, because like you said, the racism really is a, a real thing. I just hope that with, like you said, you know, hopeful for our, our generation, the next generation, like of our kids growing up, that maybe they can be more empathetic. Maybe they can see past, you know, these barriers. And, and hopefully, like, part of it is that sort of mental health piece that, you know, we are validating people's feelings. You know, we, we do know now that, like, it's okay to talk about these things and not just sort of sugarcoat things or brush it under the rug. Like, this morning, like, I don't know, she was, she probably was watching, I think she was watching an episode on, like, Bluey. Oh, Blue, I, we love and Bluey, like, too. <laughs> I love Bluey, right? One. And she asked me, like, and this must have been an episode, like, what they were talking about. I kind of overheard it while, while it was playing, but she's like, Mommy, like, do birds die? And I was like, oh. Um, and I think there was an episode yes. where, you know, they had to take the bird to the vet or something. And then, so I was like, oh, and I heard it. I was like, uh, yes. You know, like, and I think like my parents probably would have just been like, oh, you know, they just went to sleep. But I'm like, you know, if they're asking about it, you know, they want to know about it. They may already kind of know the answer because they she watched the whole episode, right? Um, she knows what happened. But I think like being honest with our kids and helping them sort of see the world will will make it better for them. And kind of what you're saying about, about your son, I think a lot of it is we're teaching them the right like core concepts. And then it's about the nuance. It's about fine tuning, right? So for him, it's like the tone, right? Or like how he says it. It's not wrong that you want to voice your opinions. How do you do it? And I think that's the challenge as they get older on teaching them how to do it in that way. So yeah, I, I, I'm very, I am also very hopeful that like we have more like-minded parents like this and that our generation of kids will hopefully grow up to be nicer people. I don't know. Happier people. <laughs> More well-rounded. Well, and to your point about the Bluey episode, I know exactly which one you're talking about. Mm-hmm. I think it's so huge to be honest with our children when they're asking things. And I think it was like a misinformed, like, I think my parents would have said the same thing to me, like try to avoid answering the question because they think we can't handle it. Right. And I think it's a misinformed attempt at protecting us. Like they're not trying to lie to right. us, you know, they're not like, Oh, I, no. but it's like this, um, this fear that they think we can't handle it. And like, actually what we can't handle is our inner knowing of what is true, not being validated by our parents, or in this case, your daughter having seen something on a show and wanting to run it by her mother. And then if she had gotten like a conflicting answer that like she didn't feel made sense, that then makes her not trust what she knows. Like it makes her not trust her own inner knowing and her intuition. And that is so much worse than having to come to grips with like animals die. By the way, age four, I think is when um, most kids start getting the concept of death. I think it's a very popular time. Mm-hmm. I remember Riker started asking about like bugs getting squashed. And I was like, did he die? Is he going to come back? And it was like, <laughs> my friends with older kids were like, oh yeah, age four. It's like when they start really kind of being curious. Okay. And it also doesn't mean the same thing yeah. to them that it does to us, you know, because they don't have the relative life experience of like, you know, whatever, like to what right, is life? exactly. Yeah. Their life is like, it's still very contained. Like the death exists in the Bluey show. But like, it's so powerful to tell kids the truth. 
you know, to tell them the truth. And like, I let my kids see me cry, whether it's like happy cry or, or like a sad cry because they see me recover. They see that, like, I'm not crying for the, for all of eternity. They see that I cry. And like my daughter, it's so cute. She'll, she's super dramatic, just like very (laughs) dramatic. Like we'll instantly go to like, she started shrieking at the top of her lungs when something doesn't go her way. I let her have apple juice yesterday and then she wanted more. And I said, no. And she started shrieking. She's so upset, but it plays out. And then she like cried, but then she stopped and she has the awareness that she stopped. She's like, I'm not crying anymore. I'm okay now. I'm okay now. And it's just like, yeah, you are, you know? And like, and it's not this like, don't cry or it's okay. It's just like, I know that sucks. Like you wanted more juice that sucks, but you're not getting it, you know, (laughs) like, um, but just this, I think, um, I don't know. I, it's, it's so wonderful just to tell your kids the truth because they can handle it. They can handle it when they know they're supported and loved, you know? Right. Like you're saying though, I think it's more our own discomfort we can't handle and tolerate. Like, I don't want to talk about this uncomfortable topic. But to them, it's not like they're just learning it. They want to know. Um, So I I really try to like be as open and honest as I can, you know, in in the proper context, of course, you know, they're young. So you still need to sort of like help them to to grasp and understand it. But it's still like very cool, though. Like, I feel like I'm seeing I'm seeing like my inner child through like fresh eyes again. Right. And like seeing how maybe I would want to be approached differently or you know, she's a curious little one. Lately, it's everything is just like, what does that mean? What does that mean? What does it mean to be married? I'm like, <laughs> oh my god! I'm like these are deep, deep questions. I don't know. How Sometimes to you go, go ask your, go, go ask your dad. <laughs> I don't know. Go ask your teacher. <laughs> I was like, I was getting into a very good explanation. I actually was very proud of myself for whatever I was saying, and then like all of a sudden she goes, oh, squirrel, look outside, mommy. I'm like, she's not even listening to me. She's not even listening. I'm like, okay. That, that's accurate. That is so accurate. Yeah. Oh man, I could talk to you forever, Jasmine, but I'm like, I know we've gone way over on our time and, okay. but thank you so much for being so generous with your, your story and your thoughts. And I'm so happy we connected. It's so wonderful that you are continuing to talk about it and write about it. And I'm so glad that we can, you know, be partners in this as Asian moms who are, you know, advocating for everyone's mental health and well-being. And I'm just, um, I'm so happy. So thank you. Same here. Same here. I couldn't have said that better. And and again, grateful for being able to connect with you. And thanks totally. for having me. Well, everybody stay tuned, watch <laughs> the space, and I'll provide all the info for following Jasmine and show notes. Um, thank you so much. Thank you, Leah. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Voices on the Side with me, Leah Kim. Voices on the Side is produced by Just Breathe. You can find out more at justbreatheproject.com. I would love it if you would tell your friends, rate, review, and subscribe to the show. It's a great way to show your support so we can keep bringing you these amazing conversations. 